We're very pleased that Dorcas Lehman will be speaking to us this morning. Dorcas and her husband Glenn are members of this congregation, but have been worshiping at Neffsville, where Glenn serves as the organist. Dorcas is campus pastor and counselor at Lancaster Mennonite School. Welcome, Dorcas. Early this summer, when Ron invited me to preach, he gave me several dates as options. This was the one that fit my schedule, but I hesitated because I knew it would be the first Sunday after Ron had left. August 21, I said to Ron, will be a low Sunday after the high Sunday last week of saying our goodbyes. Parting is such sweet sorrow and you can count on this congregation to pour its heart and soul into saying its goodbyes. It seems like it has. A few weeks ago, someone said to me, it's going okay, it's going smoothly. Ron is doing everything he can to make the ending go smoothly, but then that doesn't make it any easier to say goodbye, does it? Ron and the congregation have grown together this person observed, and so when that day comes, it will be hard to say goodbye. That day has now come and gone. Today is the first Sunday of the interim. The church board is still here and strong. Jason, our overseer, the office staff, and this whole congregation is still here and strong, but Ron, is gone, and not very long after Sue's departure either, and it seems strange that he is not preaching this morning. Ron's name will often be on our lips, and Mary Lou's, and Dan and Ben here in their early years, and Uncle Carl. When Ron was here, we will say, looking back over these 12 years together, Depending on our own story of how we came to this congregation or the particular way we interacted, we will move along in different ways. If Ron was present at your baptism or at your wedding or at a loved one's death or if he was the first pastor you chose or he came to your supper club, your experience might feel differently than the next person, but what we share in common is the shared experience of pastor and congregation together over a long 12-year period. The season of 12 years now becomes a part of our history and our memory, and it will live in us. Last week during the call to worship, Lisa King said she had seen the strength and the beauty of this congregation as it said goodbye to Ron and, and Mary Lou. I'm guessing that she spoke for more than herself. Beauty and strength, these God-given qualities, when they are present in a congregation, the questions about what will change and what will stay the same become a little less troubling. Still, it is a tender time. This is what incoming interim pastor Don Yoder Harms said when she met the congregation. This morning, I suggest that this interim time, this next chapter, is a time for tender strength. 
Maybe that is why I was drawn to the passage from Isaiah for this morning's message. Preaching in recent weeks has focused on the Gospel of Matthew and the epistles. But this morning, as the congregation shifts into a different key, I find myself drawn to the lectionary's Old Testament text for this day, Isaiah 51, 1 to 6. I invite you to turn to this passage just so that you can look at it and see how it looks on the page. Isaiah 51, 1 to 6. You'll find Isaiah between Song of Solomon and Jeremiah. In my NRSV version, and probably in yours, it is laid out in stanzas like poetry. My version titles the passage, Blessings in Store for God's People. It isn't hard to pick out the blessings. If you look, if you just glance over these verses, you can see that they come in pairs. It is poetry, and poetry often contains repetition of ideas or word pictures. But here, the pairs seem to accent and underline the promise of a better time. So if you look at verse 3, for example, wilderness becomes like Eden, wasteland like the garden of the Lord. In verse 4, teaching goes forth, and salvation goes forth, and salvation is forever, firm and strong. Who wouldn't want that? It sounds beautiful, and it is. We get the picture that when God's word goes forth, something happens, and that is to be desired. God's word does not return empty. The teachings come in pairs. Verses 1 and 2 go together, 3 and 4, and 5 and 6. You can take a closer look at that structure there sometime later. We aren't going to follow that thread all the way through this morning, but it is there. What I do want to notice now is that every part is linked to the prophet's urgent word to listen and look. The exclamation mark isn't on the page, but I can hear it in the language. The prophet calls the people to attention. This is not a passive time to sit back and wait for the blessings to rain down. No, this is a time to be attentive, to listen and look. Listen up, the teacher says, as she opens class when the school year begins. We have come to that time again, too, along with the songs of cicadas and corn as high as an elephant's eye and those last-minute getaways to the beach and the mountains. Listen to me, the prophet says, as our congregation steps into a new season. So listen and look. But where shall we look? According to Isaiah 51.1, we should look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Now when I think here rock or quarry, I think, well, let's ask a geologist what that means. Or is it a metaphor? And so we ask a Hebrew scholar. In the ancient Near East, it turns out, People knew that rock referred to Abraham and quarry referred to Sarah. I'm glad Sarah is named there along with the patriarch. By the way, she isn't always, but we know that to get from the one of Abraham to the many of the people of God, it took two. That's what they were supposed to notice. 
because of Abraham and Sarah, their ancestors in the faith, what had once seemed impossible had now become possible. That is why they were supposed to look back to get their bearings for the road ahead. The people hearing Isaiah had been in exile. Their exile in the 6th century BCE had been very hard and very long, and now it was almost over. This is the context for this passage. If you were to scan the chapters before this one, you would find some very harsh words of judgment for these same people because of their times of unfaithfulness. There had been times they needed to bear the weight of judgment for their sins. But judgment, as we heard in the scriptures already this morning, is never the last word of God to the people of God. Never, then or now. Rather, the ultimate word is a word that breaks through with a promise of generous restoration. That is the last word. Promise and anticipation. These are the bright notes we are hearing this morning. Before exile, Israel had relied too much on their own strength. They had been overconfident, relatively prosperous, and material-minded. But that was no longer true. The imperial powers were no longer on their side, and now they are dazed, destitute, and severely tempted to turn away from God. We cannot begin to imagine the scope of dislocation of these people who had been booted out of their home city and into another land. Any insecurities we might feel during an interim can't begin to hold a candle to what life was for this whole community of refugees where everything had been destroyed. Yet we know of places like this in the world more than some people, I think, we are tuned to these places, partly because of where numbers of us have worked and lived. But also, I think we have a collective sense that we as a congregation carry more than average responsibility for staying aware and responding to making uh, trouble in the world and helping to make things right. We keep the news and the Bible close, side by side. We may not be tempted to turn away from God, but we become tired and discouraged. Think of Somalia, for example. We may hear about the drought in the news, but it comes close when a letter from our own Bob and Judy Herr in East Africa makes its way into our inbox, and we sit at home and read it. We see that even natural disasters have political and economic implications. And in any given week, numbers of us make multiple connections like this on both the global and the local scale. Hearing these things in Isaiah, the prophet summons the people to rediscover a courageous identity rooted in God's own promises. While they hadn't been receptive always, now they are. The prophet sees and names that right up front. If you look at verse 7, you will see it. You who have God's teachings in your heart. Verse 1, 
you who pursue justice. Verse 2, you who are blessed. Isaiah could be talking to East Chestnut Street today. Listen and look. Get rooted in God's own promises, and you will begin to see things differently. In the Philadelphia Museum of Art these days hangs in a, a collection of sketches and paintings by the Dutch painter Rembrandt. I went to see this exhibit titled Rembrandt and the Face of Christ. Time magazine describes Rembrandt as a great Dutch painter of the 17th century who put aside otherworldly depictions of Christ and instead of painting Christ as a remote divinity, Rembrandt, Rembrandt painted him as man on the street. The writer attributes the change in, to Rembrandt's own middle-aged experiences when he lost to death his 30-year-old wife and three of his four children. Imagine that. The writer says, Rembrandt in middle age appears to have gone in search of a consoling Christ, quieter, more meditative, somebody who would listen. I think this is quite possible. Our life experiences do change our image of Christ. But other people have suggested an additional reason for the change in his, in his work, that reason being that the artist was strongly influenced by Anabaptists in 17th century Amsterdam. Some think he was very closely affiliated with Mennonites. He painted, for example, a Mennonite pastor and his wife, and it is known that he had frequent conversations about faith with a number of other Mennonites. This would have been only a generation, well, I guess two, after Menno Simons. While the details of his connections are not clear, what is clear is that Rembrandt's perspective changed. He began to use as his model for the face of Christ a Sephardic Jew who was a neighbor to him in Amsterdam. In a time when other artists focused primarily or solely on the birth or crucifixion, Rembrandt began painting biblical scenes of Jesus in many different settings with many different people, teaching and healing. This was new to portray Christ in this way. This is foundational for us. This is one of our rocks. Walking through the gallery, I could see tender strength in those faces. The prophet saw it too in Isaiah, in Zion. I want to pause at this word Zion to see it for what it is. In the ancient Near East, when people said Zion, they meant the particular city of Jerusalem. But in the prophet's view, Jerusalem as Zion was the number one city to live in because it was the conduit or channel through which God's blessings flowed to the world. In that day, Zion, says a footnote in my Bible, was the firm point in a tottering universe. It was their safe space. So where would Zion be today? Not just in Jerusalem. Zion, according to Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, should not be limited 
to one geographical place. Rather, it represents all faithful churches and synagogues through which God's blessings flow to the world. That is where Zion is. This is important, I think, in light of today's expressions of triumphalism and dominionism and our current understanding and thinking about Zionist thinking as we know it now. And Babylon, the opposing empire, it also cannot be limited to any one country or empire. More than anything else, according to Brueggemann, Babylon today represents free market consumerism and its required ally, unbridled militarism. That's the big scope of things. On a smaller scale, of course, we know that Babylon represents anything that chips away at, at, the, at our allegiances and our true identity to the rock, to the people of God. And that is why in a time and place when too many preachers call us to look to the founding fathers of this country, we look instead to Abraham and Sarah and to the other rocks since that time, our confession of faith, the founding of our congregation, our baptism, and the big rock that was rolled away on resurrection morning. And we say with Peter, the rock, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Israel's life in the ancient Near East required long faithfulness in the middle of a demanding sequence, a whole series of imperial powers. These people always kept the international geopolitical situation on their minds, but it was never simply just about politics either. It was their desire to participate in the purposes of God in history. They opened themselves to trust, to live so that God's blessings could flow through them to the world. But getting the message out didn't rest on their shoulders either, only. Isaiah makes it clear, says one commentator, that the people's work is penultimate, but God's work is ultimate. God's holy resolve is lasting. The word ultimate means final or last. The word penultimate means next to last. Neither the cause of world justice nor their own safety rested upon self-help projects, but solely upon the power that created the universe in Eden. And we have already sung and heard of that power this morning. That is why they were also supposed to look all the way back, past Abraham and Sarah, to Eden, to creation itself. They surely were not post-post-moderns, but like us, they were standing in hope on the threshold of a new time, ready to speak to, ready to address each generation that would come along with the hope of the rock. They would pay attention. They would listen and look. What had once seemed impossible could now be imagined. Last Sunday, I sat here in the congregation holding my new granddaughter, Leah Catherine, watching her dimpled smiles and crinkly frowns and 
peaceful sleep during the sermon. She has been in this world such a little time. And yet, after holding her during the first hours of her first night, already by that next morning, I felt that her face had been imprinted on my heart. Wherever she goes, I thought, I should never forget her. I should always remember her and know her. One of my friends here said to me, you have that look that new grandmothers get. If she sees it on my face, I'm not surprised. Many grandmothers had told me about the new and enduring nature of this particular kind of love. But there is more to it than I can say. Even powerful words are not enough. Sometimes when we watch Leah's face, we are convinced that she knows things that we don't even know yet or that we have forgotten. That is the nature of blessings in store for God's people. So listen and look. It seems important to do that right now, especially now, because there is a way in which one love touches other loves. There is a way in which one loss touches other losses in our lives. Isaiah promises that God will comfort our sad places. When God's word goes forth, it accomplishes what God desires. It will not return empty. Our work is penultimate. God's holy resolve is ultimate. Thanksgiving and the sound of song will be heard in this place. It was this morning strong and beautiful and sure. The word spirit does not show up in the text we're looking at this morning, but the spirit itself does. So listen and look. Put on tender strength. You who have God's teachings in your heart, you who seek after justice, you who are blessed, when things change, remember, God's salvation is forever your firm point in a tottering universe, your safe place. Thanks be to God.